Hello and welcome to a special edition of FRDH Podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. FRDH is an abbreviation of First Rough Draft of History. We journalists like to say that's what we do, write the First Rough Draft of History. And at our best, that's what our work provides. By any standard, this has been an historic year, one in which America has been revealed as profoundly divided. For many, the shock of Donald Trump's election has not subsided on both sides of the Atlantic. And that shock isn't going to go away anytime soon. But I've asked a few colleagues, people who've been writing history's first rough draft for decades, to try and use their own experience to help think through how America got this way. What they have in common is they know America well and have long experience reporting on how the United States affects the world, particularly its most volatile region, the Middle East. Robin Lustig spent nearly 30 years presenting the BBC World Service's flagship news program, NewsHour. He covered American elections how many times? I think it must have been five times. Five American elections. Before joining the BBC, he was a foreign correspondent based in Beirut. Based in Jerusalem. Based in Jerusalem for the Observer newspaper here in London. Mina al-Orebi is a former assistant editor of the pan-Arab newspaper Ashark al-Awsat. From 2009 to 2011, she was the paper's Washington bureau chief covering the Obama White House. And she returned to the U.S. last year as a Greenberg World Fellow at Yale University. Ned Temko is the former political editor of the Observer newspaper. And like Robin, he's an old Middle Eastern hand, having been based in Jerusalem for the Christian Science Monitor. And he began his career in the 1970s on the Iberian Peninsula as first Spain and then Portugal emerged from decades of fascist rule to become modern democracies. And Mina, as you will have guessed, also is an old Middle Eastern hand, and she is Iraqi by birth. So anyway, let's just jump in. I, I thought I'd begin by asking all of you how surprised you were, or is there a stronger word, about the election result. Robin, why don't we start with you? I was surprised. I was extremely surprised. I always knew that there was a chance that Donald Trump would win, but I guess like most people, I have a weakness for believing what I'm told is real data. I looked at all the opinion polls. I looked at the number crunching. And silly me, I believed what they were telling me. On the other hand, if one looks at the actual popular vote results of the election, they weren't that far off. Hillary Clinton did get a lot more votes than Donald Trump, as the polls said she would. What the polls didn't pick up was the the weird way in which the Electoral College would interpret that vote. But yeah, I was surprised. Okay. Mina, were you surprised? You've actually worked in Washington more recently than anyone around this table. I was extremely surprised. I've spent quite a bit of time in the U.S. during 2016 um, because I'm affiliated with an institute out in Washington. And so I was going to Washington at least once every six weeks. And everybody that I spoke to in Washington and New York said that, of course, that it's, it's a Clinton win. And it was extraordinary the amount of people I met who were leaving the Obama administration in the last couple of years in preparation for the Clinton administration, almost to the point they were choosing which title they would be getting. And maybe that's some of the, you know, evidence of whether it's called naivete, whether it's called arrogance of um, some of those circles. 
But I was surprised. I was actually in Dubai um, for election night. So the time difference and through, stayed up all night because I was helping with the coverage of one of the main Arabic news channels there, Al Arabiya. And as the numbers were coming in, we said, well, hold on. It's still unclear. Mm, we'll see. And there was this stumbling throughout the night. And then, of course, I would say surprise, but also shock. And I think the shock was mainly, in addition to the numbers, this belief that the American American society wouldn't accept someone who, in large part, spoke in terms of racism and misogyny that could get still enough votes. Ned? Uh, yeah, I, I was I was shocked, surprised, but I think less than I would have been because of uh, Brexit here in, in Britain. And and I, I, I thought it would be close. Um, and I thought the defining... Uh, I guess factor would be whether this kind of post-fact um, anti-rational, not just irrational, sense of um, that 1970s movie, Network, I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it any longer, uh, whether that kind of anger as a plan would triumph over kind of rational political discussion and judgment. And and I feared that as with Brexit, that would happen. And, and so, yeah, I was surprised for the reasons Mina said, simply because of some of the things that Trump did and got away with. Yeah. But Well, I mean, th- let me come back to Mina. I mean, you say shock. I mean, I think probably we all shared some of that, although I, I was also reporting during the course of the year. I made three half hours for various BBC outlets. And came across lots of people who were willing to forgive Donald Trump his mis- his misogynistic statements and whatever, because he sounds like a right-wing conservative talk show radio house, which is where they get their news. Um, but the shock, I wonder, do you feel like you, you thought you knew the U.S. really rather well, but now maybe you didn't know it as well as all that? Partly, although I, my first visit to the U.S., I went on something called the International Visitor Program that the State Department does to bring people to the U.S. And so I remember going in 2003, actually, straight after the war on Iraq. And I visited all different types uh, parts of the United States and even going to places like Grand Island, Nebraska, or visiting Cleveland or other places. There was a kindness amongst people. And yes, while in some parts there is, um, a conservative, right-wing, or even, um, you know, some ideas that I don't necessarily agree with. I think there was a sentiment that actually the society is much kinder than the sort of things that would accept what um, Trump was saying about Mexicans and Muslims and so forth. So, yes, I was surprised by that. But rightly so, as Robin said, I mean, Clinton did get more votes. And it was much more about the failures of the system. I think in September... It was when I first started saying, I'm actually concerned how this election is going to go. But, Robin, the first time you went to America, when was that? It was 1968, another big year in American (laughs) history, a year in which America became something that perhaps the rest of the world hadn't understood it to be. It was the year, it was in the middle of the Vietnam War. It was the year that Robert F. Kennedy and Martin Luther King were both assassinated. It was the year of urban riots right across the states. It was the year when the incumbent president, Lyndon Johnson, decided not to seek re-election. He was challenged by Eugene McCarthy, then by Robert F. Kennedy, a year in which uh, the Democratic Party ripped itself apart at its convention in Chicago. It was an extraordinary year. 
And I've been reminded so much of that year in this year, in 2016. But you weren't there as a professional. You were there as a student, presumably. I was there as a student journalist, and I was glued to the TV screen because I couldn't get accreditation to go to Chicago. In retrospect, I was quite yeah, pleased that I didn't. I would have got my head beaten in. Uh, but I was glued to it. I completely fell in love with American politics and with America. I had an American uncle and cousins with whom I stayed at that period through the whole of the summer of 1968. And from that day on, I've been intrigued and fascinated and in love with America and its politics. But as Mina says, I think the thing that shocked me most about the Trump victory, like her, I regard Americans by and large as kind, friendly people, open-minded people who welcome in uh, people from other parts of the world. He represented the antithesis of that, and yet he struck a chord. Yeah, I, and, and I don't. I know we don't want to get to the great media debate, but I think part of this is not so much about politics as about the fact that the way politics used to be done, and it partly involved what, what is now denigrated as so-called mainstream media, but but were very important. The Washington Post, the New York Times, the three network news broadcasts in the United States. Uh, which ensured the fact, uh, the possibility that people who disagreed with one another profoundly could actually talk and discuss and disagree, but on the basis of a kind of shared view of reality, truth. And uh, I think we have only begun to scratch the surface of the the effect that. Twitter universe is going to have and is already having, obviously, but in the long term. And that is we are, you know, we talk about post-truth eras. More seriously, um, operational democracy requires kind of grown-up adult discussion, debate, and, and I think that's but dangerously close to disappearing. I, I worry that that's giving Biz Stone a bit too much credit. I mean, it's a great invention, Twitter. I mean, I use it, you use it, we all use it to construct our own. I don't use it. You don't, <laughs> no wonder you don't need to. I, I, I keep. I, I get, wake up every morning. I don't use it. And I have it's all these too people. Many characters. I have all the, no. I have all these people. You know that I follow in Iraq and in Kurdistan and in Syria, and I get a much better daily news roundup at 6 a.m. in the morning when I wake up from Twitter than I can possibly get from the New York Times or The Guardian or any of the other spots I check in with regularly as well. But I, I mean, do you think that – I think that's giving Twitter too much credit. No, I, think, I, I, think, I, I, mean, I think it's the, the combination the question, of Twitter the question, the question and the decline really is, of when do you think, other media. When do you think this split began to happen? I mean, you, you know, the media split is, is – didn't cause it. I think it's symptom. I mean, it's it's a medium for ex, for showing us the symptoms. When did these symptoms first arrive? Robin, can you think back? Uh, I, one of the things that always struck me when I traveled in the United States and talked to people away from the coastal belts was how far away Washington, D.C. seemed to them. They talked about Washington, D.C., if you were in Ohio or somewhere like that, as if it were a foreign country. It reminded me of the way in which a lot of British people talked about Brussels. It was a, a place over there where people not like us made laws, raised taxes, which we had to pay, laws which we had to obey, but over whom we seemed to have no 
uh, no authority. And I, I do think that with the advent of the new social media, Facebook and Twitter in particular, people were able to lock into a form of media which left the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Los Angeles Times to one side. They could ignore all that. They could listen to their talk radio and they could read people online whom they agreed with and who agreed with that's, them. That's the crucial thing. Absolutely. These are closed universes. And one of the reasons we didn't pick up on it was we weren't reading it. We weren't following the people that they were following. We weren't reading the fake news sites that they were reading and believing. Mm. Uh, I mean, I would just, I would add on the, on the media side, I think in addition to, yes, of course, that there are so many more outlets now and you could choose the echo chamber that you want and so forth. I think there's another issue here, that suddenly everybody could play the role of a journalist. Mm -hmm. Some of the discussions I'm having with people who discredit what the New York Times, what the BBC, what even the UN is saying about what's happening in Syria today because they can go to some, they can come to a conclusion on their own. They're not even going to somebody else. They've come to a conclusion that actually these are terrorists that need to be killed, for example. And so they've come to that conclusion. They don't even want to hear anybody else. And so I think part of that, but I would just say one other point about what's changed in the US. I think the issue of race and the idea that some people are ridiculous enough to think this is a post-racial time, just like this post-truth mm -hmm. symptom that everyone talks about, it's not a post-racial time. I think a lot of this was also about race. But when you, when you went over in 2009, which coincided with President Obama taking office, I mean, did you not feel that this was some kind of, actually there's a, a very positive energy and way of cresting here? In Washington, D.C., and for a lot of the millennials that came after they had worked on his campaign, yes. But actually, outside of D.C., you still felt the undercurrent. And I think you felt it much more in his second term. Michael, I was in Alabama on Inauguration Day in January 2009. I actually watched the inauguration on a TV screen in a huge auditorium with 6,000 Alabama African Americans. They were emotional beyond description. But I also spoke to some white Alabamans. Mm. They were experiencing the opposite emotion. They did not accept from day one mm. that Barack Obama was a legitimately elected president of the United States of America. And I think that remained right throughout. I agree with Mina. I think race was mm. a large part of it. And remember, Donald Trump started yeah. his political Precisely career as a so. Precisely I mean. so. And I think the fact that he discovered there was a residence there that he was getting purchased with that argument probably first made him understand that he could progress along that path with lies, with bigotry, and move to where we see him can, today. Can I uh, just shift gears a little bit? Because you, you, you were pointing out that one of the things we want to talk about is America's role beyond the United States. And, yeah. and one, in one area which I think we kind of skate over is that the notion of kind of a plague on all your houses, one super superpower is exactly like another, which, which kind of grew up during the Cold War, on, particularly in the European left, doesn't take account of the fact that for all its faults, and I think, Robin, you, you described it perfectly, even in that terrible year, 1968, uh, when so much bad happened, there is a distinction, there has been a historical distinction in American democracy that is seen when you travel abroad that does make it special and which now is under threat. Uh, 
And, and that is the notion that they kind of get it right. It is an open society. Mina used the phrase kindness, which which I think, you know, is probably like everything else. It's it oversimplifies things, but there is a kernel of truth in all of that. If you go back further in American history, though, it has had periodic moments of isolationism. It, it, this is not the first time that a significant proportion of Americans have said, we're not interested in the rest of the world. We want to fix our own problems. You do what you want to do. We're going to concentrate on our own country. But po- but post-World War II, Indeed. this is by far the most extreme yes. example. But that's why 2016 becomes an absolute turning point. Yes, it, I agree. Because it's the end of that post-1945 era, I think. And but if I, I, th- suppose I things... said history began yeah. in 2003 between, I don't know, it was the, the, the white stripes, and it, but too late for me. I mean, look... Um, 2003 and the failure of the Iraq invasion, I mean, if, if it had just been about removing Saddam from power, fair enough, then it was a success. But we, we all know that the, the occupation turned into a continuing disaster. And uh, the isolationism that Trump has trapped in, uh, tapped into comes from that, I think. W- would you agree, Mina? It's hard for me to gauge because I feel so much of what was going on in the U.S. wasn't about America's role in the world. And actually, if they did take it into account, then probably actually Clinton would have done worse, given what happened under the Obama administration, my reading of it. But what I would say is you're right. I think the Iraq war had an impact, especially on military families, those who are in those communities that saw what happened both out of Iraq and Afghanistan, there was a sense of being um, broken. So there's two sides of this. The American perception of it is not so much isolationism, but more in their thinking, we're not going to go help other people. Nation building is not our problem. I mean, the amount of times Trump would talk about nation building without knowing what he's talking about. Um, and that resonated. So I think, yes, and but it stops there. Not so much about, oh, my goodness, where did the Iraq war go or any of that. I mean, it was as tone deaf as Obama's announcement that he ended the war in Iraq by pulling out U.S. troops. And, of course, he ends his term with 5,000 American troops back in Iraq, but nobody talks about that. So so that's the American perception. On the On the international perception, then yes, for sure. Most people, I believe, in Europe and in the Middle East, in China, when you speak to people there, and I guess in Russia, greatly so, this sense of the failure in Iraq and this retreating from the Middle East that we saw under Obama, funnily enough, not under Trump, this retreating and feeling that we can't really make a difference and therefore leading into the phase that we're entering. There is a theory that one of the things that a nation needs to retain its coherence is an enemy. And you could look at the period since 1989 when communism disappeared as an enemy or 1991 when the Soviet Union finally collapsed. And you could say that from that period until 9-11, the U.S. was without an enemy. 9-11 happened and suddenly Islam emerged as a convenient, erroneous, but widely perceived to be enemy. 9-11 was followed by Afghanistan, which was followed by Iraq. Trump again tapped into this idea that the U.S. was under threat by terrorists from the Muslim world and that the way to deal with them was, first of all, to hit them harder than they've ever been hit before, to kill their families, to torture them, to do everything else, but also to build walls to keep them out. Robin, I I think that every Republican that, that 
tried to get the nomination this year would, would have taken the same view. I mean, they, they vied with each other for what they were going to do to the Middle East. I mean, I think it was Ted Cruz. Except Kasich. Right? Yeah. Except, yeah. Kasich, except you Kasich. You guys all forget about Kasich. Yeah. I really liked Kasich. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's, right. he's not very popular at the moment because he's, he's, he's tightened the abortion restrictions yeah, in, right. in Ohio. Although but, that will be left wing <laughs> will, in, in, in comparison I, with the new eventually. administration. But that's looking ahead. This is the first rough draft of history, not the first rough draft of the future. Um, but I, I, you know, I guess what I, I'm curious is, did history really start in 2003? Or did the first steps towards Trump happen much earlier in taking on board our talk of the media, our talk of the failure in Iraq? Because you know, I've been living here in London for 31 years, and I see, I mean, I started clocking this a long time ago, um, that America was fundamentally changing. I wonder if 9-11 was actually the turning point, because I think until 9-11, a lot of Americans believed that the U.S. was impregnable. It hadn't been bombed during World War I. It had not been bombed during World War II, apart from Pearl Harbor. It was omnipotent, it was without, uh, it, it was exceptional, it was the superpower. 9-11 happened, 3,000 Americans were killed, and suddenly I think a lot of Americans came to believe that there were enemies out there who could and wanted to do them harm, and that they needed to come to terms with that. And I think they felt vulnerable, and I think they felt scared, and from that a lot then followed. But I would take another um, turning point that's actually more recent, which is the financial crisis. I really think people talk about it in terms of, oh, people are doing badly economically and they think Trump is going to come and help them. I think there's also such a resentment, and rightly so. I mean, this idea that banks were too big to fail, but communities weren't too big to fail. I think even Brexit here in the UK, not enough responsibility has been taken on of what the financial crisis meant to people. And even if they didn't personally get impacted, the way they saw the impact resonate throughout society and this thing of each to their own and I have to take care of myself because the system fails me. And the system didn't take on board what was happening to them. The system no. seemed not to notice. I remember going around communities in which um, all the houses were, were being repossessed yeah. and it wasn't being talked about. It was happening. People were losing their homes. But it wasn't being talked about. But Robin, you could go around Ohio and Pennsylvania and throughout the Rust Belt, and you could have been going around in the 1990s, mm -hmm. and you could have seen factories that had been abandoned a decade earlier in which, you know, or, being reclaimed or, by or, nature. Or the coal industry of West Virginia, which began declining in the 1950s. Uh, so... So but were there not at that point still politicians who were prepared to represent the interests of those people? Were there not still politicians, particularly in the Democratic Party, union leaders and others, who were prepared to voice the concerns and the fears and the needs of those people? I think one of the things that's happened more recently is that a whole swathe of American people have felt there are no politicians talking about them and to them. No, I think that's, I think that's true. What, what is dangerous, potentially is that the solutions being offered, in other words, bring back the coal industry to West Virginia, bring back big steel to Pennsylvania, uh, ain't going to happen, and, and as Trump must know. And uh, while he's cleaning the swamp and, and naming one 
Goldman Sachs executive after another to his cabinet. Uh, the fact is there are going to be a lot of still disappointed people out there. Well, somebody, somebody and, remarked just the other day that, that, that nobody is saying to Americans that the people threatening your jobs are not the Mexicans or the Chinese. They're the robots. Yeah, they're microchips. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's true. And, and it's a very difficult – and I, I hate to come back to the, the theme of the absence of serious debate. One thing you learn as a foreign correspondent if you do it long enough and go around the world and, you know, the one part of the CV, my CV, immodest uh, – very modest CV which you left out was three years in the Soviet Union under Brezhnev and Andropov. Um, you realize that f building a functional democracy is – or governing in a functional democracy is by definition a process of compromise. It, it's, it's getting what you can. Well, that's a very good – And it's, it's tough. That's it's a, really a, tough. That's a really good point. And, I, and it, it go all the way back to, to when we were talking about um, how the new media splits people apart. I remember – because I was covering the diplomacy to try and end the, the carnage in Bosnia, and this was in 92, 93, 94, um, that it was almost impossible for Bill Clinton to show leadership because in 93, the, you know, they came into office, they were going to have health care for everyone. They got their heads handed to them. They did it so badly. And then the following year, Newt Gingrich and the Republicans took Congress with their contract on America, a contract with America. <laughs> and, and that seems to me the moment where absolute non-cooperation yeah. as, as a form of political ideology and, and, an, and a way of creating chaos in governance was both planted and took root very quickly. And, it, you know, luckily the Senate was still in the hands of grown-ups like Bob Dole, who may put the president of Taiwan in touch with Donald Trump, but in, in his, in his mid-90s guise as a lobbyist and, and at spokesman for Viagra. And, but in those days, he was a serious politician and was not going to allow, having fought and lost the use of his arm at Anzio, he was not going to allow fascism to return to Europe. And he provided the Republican Party's cover for Bill Clinton to you know, rearm, rearm people and, and push the Serbs back and ultimately force the Dayton peace conference and the Dayton Accords. But this taps into something that Mina was saying. I mean, quite rightly, Mina pointed out that the role of the financial crisis in, in this disaffection with conventional politics. I think what a lot of people came to see after that crisis was that conventional democratic politics couldn't cope. It couldn't cope with a capitalist crisis which had enveloped them and their communities and that this idea of compromise simply no longer delivered. And so the things that were affecting them and were hurting them somehow weren't being resolved. Yes, Barack Obama saved Detroit, quote, unquote, but there were many, many other people whom he didn't save. And I think one of the, the big historic things that will be written about for decades to come is the failure of conventional liberal democracy to cope with the challenges, both the security challenges and the economic challenges that were thrown up in this time of rapid post-industrialization, automation, globalization, and all of that. The, the traditional way of doing politics ain't working. 
Well, this goes back to, to what mm-hmm. Ned was saying about life in the Soviet Union. Yeah, I was going to say, I've seen the alternative. It's no better, mm-hmm. quite mm-hmm. frankly. And, uh, and the danger is that in the vacuum that you now define, you have with great alacrity, alacrity people like Vladimir Putin who say, mine, all mine. And, and, uh, and there is a real familiar feel in lots of ways to watching Putin for me and having lived and covered, uh, you know, lived in Moscow and covered the demise of the Soviet Union under Brezhnev. I, I wonder, Mina, do, do you see much in, in the way that the president-elect is pushing forward his family as his interlocutors to, with the Middle East, you know, government by family? Well, this idea that nepotism and vested interests and mixing business with politics is going to be acceptable will make a lot of Middle Eastern leaders feel very comfortable. (laughs) It's like, there we go. We told you this is how it works. This is how it's done. You're finally learning. And it, it is worrying. I mean, partly, you know, we take hope that the, that Congress will do its role regardless of political allegiances in terms of vetting um, some of the cabinet picks and so forth. However, it seems like this train has left the station and will American institutions stand up? And it goes back to the point Ned was talking about governance. You think so much about the issues of governance in uh, the Middle East. One of our biggest problems, we don't have institutions that can stand up because power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So if Donald Trump wants to have his family cut deals, if there are people with vested interests in the cabinet, will the institutions succeed? Will the courts, like some mayors of certain cities, stand up to any push on mass deportations or trying to register Muslims? If those institutions succeed, then the federal system that was put in place in the U.S. succeeds that these institutions actually succeed. So this is a real test for the United States, and the world is watching because then it will prove that if you do have the right institutions and if you devolve power in different branches, then you can secure the country. And, and I think Mina's absolutely right. And, and I would just, since we're talking about rough drafts of history, go back to a, a little bit after the time that you were talking about, Robin, and that's Watergate. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I remember Water, I came of age as I started journalism inspired by Watergate. And even though I never covered the states, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C., and my hometown paper, the Washington Post, broke this story. And two things, two lessons, which are relevant to Mina's absolutely crucial question, emerged from Watergate. And, and one of them is First Amendment, you know, the importance of the ability, the freedom of people to say, no, that's wrong. That's not going to happen. And the other was, and I'm less optimistic than than some people about the resilience of these institutions is the simple rule of law. And remember, I remember going to being in Western Europe, actually, after Nixon resigned and encountering a mix of astonishment and admiration that basically, wow, you know, the president of the United States has to do this because even his own attorney, you know, it wasn't just the courts, it was the Justice Department. And I hope that kind of resilience still survives. I'm not so sure. Well, I, I agree entirely. I mean, I think 
all attention now and, and the attention of future historians when they come to look back will be on how Congress deals with the Trump presidency and how the US Supreme Court deals with the Trump presidency. The Watergate example is a fantastically useful one. If you look at the way in which the Republican Party dealt with Trump, you cannot be optimistic. The Republican Party covered itself in ignominy the way in which it dealt with Trump. It could have stopped him. It chose not to. The way in which even today leading Republican congressmen and women seem yet not to be sure how to deal with Trump, I find astonishing. Well, first they they've know got to what see this whether means. they can get a job. Well, they... that's what's so <laughs> shameful. They know who he is. They know the threat that he presents. But to be fair, I mean, some really did try to push back on him. I and mean, Paul Ryan, who we used to think is, you know, he is, he is the leader of the Tea Party <laughs> in, in Congress, suddenly became the voice of reason. And I do think that everybody from McCain to Paul Ryan, even those who wrote, you know, the Republican national security experts who wrote that 50-member memo that was published in the New York Times – that took a lot. I mean, they did try, but you're right in terms of the machine. Once it realized this is a winner, went behind him. But I do think it, it would be unfair to dismiss individuals oh, well, who, from the Republican well, establishment who actually well, did try. We'll, we'll see. I mean, I, I you know, I, I did a series on 1973 for the for BBC a couple of years ago, and in researching it, I really was amazed. Um, when the Saturday night massacre occurred, and this really is going back in history, um, and Nixon fired the top three officials of the Justice Department who were meant to have independence in investigating him because I guess they were insisting on getting the tapes handed over. Um, it was Republicans who were as eloquent in saying, you can't do this. And there's a report in the Washington Post in which, which captures the febrile nature of that event. It was in October 1973. You know, people were speaking of the Nazis and of, you know, the Third Reich, that, that the president has almost untrammeled power if he chooses to be assertive. Barack Obama has chosen to be more emollient and seek compromise. But a president who wants to take the country into a war of choice can invade Iraq in 2003. That's the power of the presidency. And I don't think that's diminished. And I'm not sure that a Republican Congress that's as ideologically driven as this one will match up to the Republicans in Congress in 1973. Yeah, I mean, the real key is, I mean, Mina's right to mention people like John McCain. And in other words, the key will be because the Senate, they have, what, a majority of four. Uh, and battles will be chosen. But the key will be in some of these confirmation hearings, uh, the notion of having as Secretary of State someone who has been not only chummy with Putin but decorated by him and whose only foreign policy experience is the independent foreign policy of ExxonMobil. Yeah. Uh, will there be three or four Republicans who say this, you know, it's not a question of whether Republican or Democrat, this probably isn't who you want as your senior foreign policy person. Agreed. But I think also it's it's always compelling when you look at the United States. The minute the election is over, Congress starts thinking about the next elections in two years' time. We're already in that cycle. And so I think some who may want to speak up against Trump 
and Congress will already be thinking, but hang on, is this going to cost me my seat? And so that that's another, I think, mm-hmm. issue in um, in politics that we have to look at. And we see what happened to Barack Obama in terms of in Congress, the Democrats at many points throughout his presidency actually didn't have his back. Just just on the subject of institutions, one of the things that has always struck me about Americans whenever I've visited the United States is the immense pride that most Americans feel for their constitution, for the way in which the founding fathers put a country together, an immense loyalty to the constitution. I'm not at all convinced that Donald Trump himself feels that same loyalty. Some of the things he said during the campaign about freedom of the press, about dealing with with people who didn't agree with him, would suggest that he doesn't give a fig about the constitution. Now, if he follows through on that, and of course we don't know whether to believe a word that he has said during the, the during the campaign because he contradicted himself so often. But if, if he follows through on that, I hope that a lot of Americans will say, "Hang on a minute, that's not the way the Constitution says you should behave." But your your, your original contact with Americans going back to 1968, you would have thought, "Yes, they would." But mm. now I get the sense you're not so sure. Not so sure at all. No, no. and I find that deeply depressing. Okay. What I want to do is I, I just want to kind of refocus us. It's, it, it is true this election has turned us all in one way or another into America obsessives. Um, and, and it's like a black hole. We're, we're all looking into America. But you know, everybody here has reported on the effects of America in the world. And um, you know, we, I live here. We live here. Ned and I have been here a very long time. Um, and have often heard the expression, Britain won the war but lost an empire and is still looking for a role. And I wonder if, if you, I'm going to ask you, Robin, first, and then Mina, you know, America is an empire. It, you, know, you don't go to Delaware and incorporate yourself and say, we are now America Empire LTD, limited. No, but it has become an empire, it, it, an accidental empire. And I do wonder if... Your experience is that Americans understand what the burdens and responsibilities of being a citizen of empire mean. I don't think they do. I don't think certainly Americans who voted for Donald Trump want to accept the responsibilities and the burdens. They, I think, would be happier if America was not expected to carry those burdens and responsibilities. What worries me as a non-American is how an angry empire behaves. It seems to me that what Trump represents is the anger of a lot of Americans. He also now will have the power to use that anger in ways which at the moment we, I don't think, want to imagine. But that scares me, and that's why I come back to the institutions. It will be up to the institutions and the voters to to rein him back. But... America, for example, was, had an imperial forward deployment in Beirut in 1982. And what happened then? Well, Americans have suffered a lot as a result of their imperial role. Thousands and people of, of the world have And the suffered. people of the world, absolutely. But them. of course, indeed so. But Americans remember the American fallen. One only has to go to any military cemetery in America and see the way in which they remember. And that is to their credit. Uh, But that has now become first and forefront in, in their minds. And I think with the advent of drone warfare, with the advent of aerial warfare, they can wage war with fewer losses 
than was the case in the past, and that's yeah. another danger. I think uh, the, the deeper danger, though, is that we have an entire generation, obviously, but also a president-elect who either aren't interested in or don't see the, con the, the broad historical context for America's role. And, and the fact is that America, as you say, Mina, uh, you, you know, in its interventions has made mistakes. People have suffered. Americans have suffered. Others have suffered. But it's not a zero-sum game. In other words, that basically, even though American presence in the world sometimes carries difficulties, American absence from the world is in its way, its way much more dangerous. I want to bring Minnie in because you, you're sitting there nodding your head and you have a very personal connection to this. Well, I think I agree with both Robin and Ned in what they're saying. I would just add that on the one hand, American absence from leadership role, I really think began with the Obama administration. Whether it was that ridiculous phrase of lead from behind, wherever that started, nobody will agree on where it started. Whether the sense of we hold no responsibility for Syria because look at what happened in Iraq. So if you intervene, it's bad. If you don't intervene, it's bad. So we just we'll just detach ourselves. That is not true. Um, we need another podcast to go into the reasons why that's not true. But in in large part, the U.S. is an empire and does have a presence. Think the empire is in decline. Part of it is at the turn of the century, everyone was talking about this is the Chinese century or the Asian century. So it's almost become ingrained in people's minds that we are we are retracting, we are coming back, whether we like it or not. That's one side. The other side of this is I believe under Trump, it isn't so much that we are retreating. It's that we're doing it our way and we don't have to be concerned about the ramifications. So when you have a president-elect that during the campaign said, we should go and take the oil. Who cares about international law? Who cares about sovereignty? Who cares? And he was cheered incredibly by all sides on that of people who actually may disagree with other things. Say, yes, actually, too, right. We should. And what that means. So, so I think I worry that the empire might strike back in a different way um, rather than what Obama had in mind when he tried to pull back mm. on some of that presence. But it remains that the military presence is what counts. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, to, pulling back, and we were talking about isolationism earlier, is uh, the reason I was queuing you on 1982 and the, the attack on the Marine barracks in Beirut is that began a withdrawal. I mean, America, not in Latin America. Well, as did, of not, course, to go back to 1968, as did defeat in Vietnam. The, the Tet Offensive also began the withdrawal process, although let, let's be honest. I mean, they, they were still withdrawing four years later, and they were still bombing Hanoi for No, but I'm saying later. the Vietnam War was also, in its time, the start of we shouldn't get involved, we have to, you know, have to take care of it. Comes in waves. But, and, but nothing on the scale of what we're seeing now. Really? Well, I'm not. It's, I'm not. I, I'm not. Yeah. I, I'm not entirely sure because what the, the 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 point. My memory is this: that 1982, the Marine barracks was blown up in Beirut. There was a, a pulling back. There was a lot of rhetoric about taking on the Soviet Union and so on and so forth, and a lot of very nasty um, training of guerrillas in in Latin America to protect the southern flank. But in other ways, not a great projection of American force elsewhere which culminated with the disintegration of Yugoslavia. You know, Soviet Union fell apart. Hey, we won. 
And as Yugoslavia fell apart, Jacques Delors, and I covered this, Jacques Delors said to the Bush administration, I hope America stays out of this. This is a European problem. And the next thing you know, America, where are you? Because we, we can't figure out what to do. We've got seven countries now and Serbia is killing you know, innocent women and children in Sarajevo. And so Bill Clinton could not get back into the game. And it, as I said, it requires it. And I do wonder if, if there is, a, you know, if we're just in a wave here or if this is permanent. Does it feel permanent to you? I, I used to have a friend who was a great British political historian. And whenever we had this sort of kind of discussion in the British political context, he used to come up with this phrase. He just said, tick tock goes the clock. And it was the idea of a pendulum swinging backwards and forwards and that political developments go in waves. History doesn't just move in one direction inexorably. I think there is a wave of isolationism that, that, that sweeps through the United States every few decades. What's so worrying about this one is that it seems to be deeper. It seems to be angrier with the way in which uh, globalization has changed the world. Its effects are, are less predictable U.S. remains by far the global military superpower. It can impose its will militarily in a way which no other country, not even Russia or China, can. We just don't know yet what future historians will say about how it chooses yeah, to use I, that power. I, I, we're running out of time, and I, I just really want to come back almost to where we began. Is this an epochal change? Does the, the election of Donald Trump, not because he's Donald Trump, but because it, what it, it has opened up to all of us a view of America that perhaps we actually didn't expect, which is where we started, shocked and surprised. Do you think that this is a real change of direction that, from which there is no coming back? Mina? If it was in isolation, then no. But it comes alongside Brexit, rise of populism, the weakening of the UN. The UN celebrated its 70th birthday and at this point is looking more like the League of Nations than it ever has. So can a new UN Secretary General, who I have a lot of admiration for, and a team together with a concerned world come together and say, no, we want to strengthen it? I find it hard to believe when the holders of the UN Security Council positions are so embroiled in their own problems. Uh, I think it's potentially epical, but I, th I, th I think it depends. I'm more concerned about Donald Trump as president-elect than the election result in the sense that even during previous periods of isolationism, uh, the presidents, the people who sat in that office had a sense of history, had a knowledge of an interest in the world. Uh, and a kind of native intelligence and sense of responsibility, all of which, in my view, Donald Trump seems conspicuously to lack. And I will finish with, with just one thing. What's at stake here? You know, we talked about all the things we've covered. The most inspiring thing I ever covered, I happened to be privileged to be in Berlin the night the wall fell down. Uh, and it's a reminder that these things aren't just chess pieces, geopolitical struggles, that there's a real difference of values here, and the, and the stakes are pretty high. And with all the problems and occasional mistakes of American engagement in the world, uh, as I said, the world is generally worse off when America disengages. I started with 1968, which was a, a moment of history. You can go from there to 1989, another moment of history. 
I think 2016 has been a moment of history. But I think if I were writing a book in 20 years' time about this year, I wouldn't call it the year Trump won. I'd call it the year Putin won because I think that's what will turn out to be the really significant event of this year. It's the year when suddenly Putin had the world at his feet. Well, that's all we have time for. And that's a very interesting piece of speculation, first rough draft of the future. And we should probably do this again. I enjoyed it. Thanks to my guests, Robin Lustig, Mina Al-Orebi, and Ned Temko. If you've enjoyed this FRDH podcast, please visit the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. There's a lot more to listen to there. And there's also a donation button. Please make a donation to keep these rough drafts of history coming. Thanks for listening.